Welcome to episode 9 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. On October 17, 1944, that's two days after Zelazy took power in Budapest, Adolf Eichmann returned to Budapest and immediately demanded 50,000 able-bodied Jews for work, most of them from the younger generation, to be marched on foot to the Austrian border and then deeper into Germany. The labor force was shrinking rapidly in Germany. Since every able-bodied male was in the military, they needed more laborers immediately. Adolf Eichmann wanted all the remaining Jews in Budapest to be rounded up and concentrated in a ghetto outside the capital. The Hungarian puppet government made no objection to Eichmann's request. Adolf Eichmann told the Jewish leaders in Budapest that he is back to complete his mission, which he could not finish in July. He told them that he would put an end to the Hungarian-Jewish problem because Hungary is still under German military command, and his arms are long enough to get all of them, and this time he will drive all of them out from the city on foot. On October 20th, the deportation of the Jews began again. The Red Army was approaching the capital from the east, and the Jews from Budapest were forced to march westward, away from the fast-advancing communist forces, to dig anti-tank trenches. On October 22nd, 25,000 men and boys, 16 years of age and older, and 10,000 young women, fit fit for hard work, were rounded up outside the capital. The German Nazis did not want the Jewish laborers to dig anti-tank trenches on Hungarian territory, or to stop or slow down the Red Army temporarily. They wanted to drive them up to the Austrian border, dig trenches there so they can take advantage of slowing down the Red Army. But it did not happen that way after all. On October 23rd, Hungarian Prime Minister Ferenc Zelazy agreed to the deportation of about 25,000 Jews to Germany for forced labor. But the Nazis rounded up over 35,000. No Hungarian authority was checking the numbers how many were actually kept in the camps outside the capital. On the same day, posters were placed on the bulletin boards in the ghettos announcing that all those Jews with foreign passports or proof of foreign nationality will be exempt from deportation to Germany. The German authorities in Budapest did not like that new ruling at all, but to avoid a military confrontation, they agreed to it. The reservoir of German slave labor was running low, and the underground armament factories in Austria were badly undermanned. The Nazis tried to acquire as many Jews as they could. Before the roundup started, the representative of the neutral countries and the International Red Cross were working around the clock to produce and distribute documents to save thousands of innocent lives. Raul Wallenberg and his staff at the Jewish Legation could not keep up with the urgent request to make up enough protective passports in large numbers while the time was very short. Since the underground had plenty of people, we volunteered to help him. It took three and a half days for many of us to make up almost 5,000 protective passports backed by the Swedish government. It took a whole day of hard work for him to distribute these documents to those people who did not have any other protective papers yet. At the same time, the head of the Swiss consular service, Charles Lutz, the Swiss vice consul in Budapest, started his own action to save Jews from deportation. Again, he started to issue more documents similar to those that he had issued in July. The paper said that the holder of that document was to be regarded as a Swiss citizen, and by all means he has proof of that at the Swiss consulate. 
Charles Lutz was authorized to issue protective passports to Jews who held British, French, or any other country's citizenship. On one occasion, he issued a collective passport listing nearly 1,000 Jews on a single Swiss passport. It was one of his many smart ideas. He tried to save Jews all the time. We used to tell him jokingly that with a 20-foot roll of paper and the Swiss government seal and signature on it, he could walk away with half a million Jews. The most interesting of them was all that most of those people who looked at or checked the collective passports did not have the slightest idea what that document meant. The International Red Cross took the lion's share of the mission to help save Jewish lives. A delegate from the International Red Cross issued 30,000 protective certificates for the Jews in Budapest. These papers were not backed by any international law, but they still yielded fantastic results, maybe due to the pressure of the War Refugee Board or the government of the neutral nations. The Red Cross started to intensify its activity. With the permission of the Silesian government, they set up soup kitchens and fed about 25,000 Jews and non-Jews a day. They provided shelters for thousands of Jewish children and set up houses for those in need. Most of the religious leaders once again showed their outrage over the brutal and inhuman manners the government was handling the born and baptized Jews. But Cardinal Zeredi spoke up only for those Jews who were baptized. He did not bother to defend the rest of them. Although the mass deportation ended on July 24, 1944, the Nazi SS units and the Gestapo still managed to round up Jews in the provinces. After they had so many in the temporary camp, they forced them into boxcars, and they were heading to an unknown destination. The underground and the representatives of the neutral nations were unable to interfere with those atrocities. But since our telephone lines and shortwave radios were hooked up to the Nazi headquarters, we knew well in advance the location and the time when the train will be ready to leave. Usually we pass the information to Raul Wallenberg. On most occasions he found a way to show up before the train took off and grabbed a few hundred Jews from the Nazis' hands. On October 25, 1944, we noticed that our apartment house on Visegrady Street was under surveillance. The rest of the tenants were made up of older couples or women with children. Hardly any men were around because most of them were drawn into the military. We knew that neither the German nor the Hungarian Gestapo would keep any of these tenants under surveillance. We came to the conclusion that it has to be us. We had two options. Either leave everything behind and get the hell out of there as fast as we can, or try to get our office equipment and all the incriminating evidence out and come back smiling. We didn't know how much time we had until somebody tried to break down the door. We knew if the Gestapo raids the place and finds our radio equipment and the documents forging business, they will jump on the custodian to find out everything about us. The poor building manager probably would be tortured to death for no reason because he knew nothing about us. We just could not let that happen, so we started to pack real fast. One of us kept the eye, an eye on the Gestapo man on the street while four of us filled three big suitcases in a hurry. Since we had access to the other apartment building behind us, by climbing over the stairway railing, we carried everything over and came out from the building on the other street. We packed everything into the ambulance without anybody noticing anything. My four partners drove away and I stayed in the apartment by myself. I was watching the guy on the street and shortly after 10 p.m. two others joined him. Then the two who just arrived were heading toward the door. The two were members of the Hungarian Gestapo. 
I knew they can't have any evidence against us, otherwise the Gestapo would have break down the door instead of ringing the doorbell. Besides, I was still in the military on light duty because I was injured earlier in the war on the Eastern Front. I just opened the door and asked them in. When they saw me in uniform and armed, they were really surprised. They were talking very nice and asked for my permission to look around the apartment. One of them said that due to somebody's report, Jews were hiding in the building. He wanted to know if I knew something about that. I told him the accusation is ridiculously ridiculous because nobody would take a chance like that in this house to hide Jews. There was absolutely nothing left in the apartment that would incriminate me. They apologized for the inconvenience they caused and left. We knew that we had to find another place to set up for our activities because the Gestapo would watch the building for a while and then another raid next time would be disastrous. On October 27th, we got word that in an apartment house with a yellow star on it on Jokai Street, J-O-K-A-I, some of the Jews were threatened by some Aerocross members. The story started a few days ago when some of the Aerocross punks wanted to rob a few Jews while they were standing in line for soup. One of the Nazis wanted to take away the necklace with the Jewish star on it from a woman. The people around her told the punks to go away or they will call on the Swiss consulate. The Nazis left, but they told the Jews they will be killed and their bodies will be thrown into the river. They came back a couple of times and repeated their threats. That's when the underground took action. The Jews were allowed to leave the ghetto for different purposes between 11 and 2 o'clock every day. Everybody who left had to check out and check in when they returned. The same day we met a couple of men from the ghetto while on leave. This time we got all the information we needed for all 14 persons of the three families whose lives had been threatened. The following day, all 14 left the ghetto during the permitted time and each family went to a given place. We picked up all of them with the ambulance. The three families were taken to Bazarmenye Road in the other part of the city where we still had several available apartments. With the new birth certificates and other documents, no Gestapo, SS force, or Hungarian Aerocross gang could touch them any longer. If any of those people would still be alive today, they probably never forgot the military ambulance. That ambulance was used by us many times and saved many lives from certain death up to the last minute before the Red Army invaded the capital. On October 28, 1944, we had to take somebody to the hospital, and while driving through Teres Korut, K-O-R-U-T, we saw three boys in Nazi uniform holding a group of Jews at gunpoint while robbing them and forcing them to take their clothes off. We intercepted them, and immediately, since we outnumbered and outranked them, we forced them to put their firearms down and leave. They did not resist, but one of them was threatening to report our interception to the Gestapo. I was ready to smack his face, but fortunately the others were holding me back. The Jews were grateful and went back to the ghetto. At any time of the day, if you were on the street bordering the ghetto, you could see these atrocities carried out by the Nazi Aircross gangs. Since Raul Wallenberg arrived in Budapest on July 9th of 1944, he managed to populate those 32 apartment, house, apartment houses under the protection of the Swedish government. But sometimes even the protected houses were raided by Nazi Aerocross gangs, ignoring the existing laws. On several occasions, members of the Aerocross party seized one of the protected houses, rounded up the Jews on the streets, and marched them through the streets to the other part of the city, 
and kept them in the brick factory overnight. They were beaten, robbed of all their valuables. The Swedish and Swiss protective passports were taken away and burned right on the spot, and so were the documents issued by the International Red Cross. When we heard about these atrocities, we informed Lutz or Wallenberg and replaced some of the documents because anybody without it was subject to deportation. Sometimes the parents had protective passports, but the kids did not have any. For the Nazis, it was a reason to separate the children from their parents. In cases like that, we put the children into houses under Red Cross protection. Editor's note, we've seen that in America in the last couple of years, tragically. Meanwhile, the 25,000 Jews that were agreed by the Zalazi regime for deportation were getting ready to start the march. Although only 25,000 were allowed by the Prime Minister, more than 35,000 were marked for the march by the Gestapo and the SS units. Adolf Eichmann ordered one battalion of SS soldiers to take over the guard duty over the marchers, which was supposed to start in a very short time. But before the roundup for deportation started, 8,000 more protective papers were issued by Charles Lutz. In a few short weeks, he organized 76 buildings with the approval of the Nazi government and put them under Swiss diplomatic protection. 27,000 Jews were concentrated in those houses. Most of them were living there already, and in some of them were transferred from different parts of the ghetto. All of those Jews in the Swiss protected houses were excluded from the 25,000 who were supposed to march to Germany with the permission of the Hungarian government. On the night of November 5, 1944, a day before the first marchers started their Germany from Budapest, several hundred Jews were smuggled into one of the Swiss-protected houses, the Glass House. Although the rooms in that building were overcrowded already, those who were living there tried to squeeze in a few more people. That was the only way to save them from deportation. A few more families from the ghetto also entered the Swiss-protective houses, without the approval of the Zalazi government. In the beginning of November 1944, approximately 155,000 Jews were still living in the ghettos and in the protected houses in the capital. On November 6, 1944, the march of the Jews toward the Austrian border started, and the representatives of the neutral countries were at their end of helping ability. They did not have any more reasons or diplomatic protests to stop the new wave of deportation. In a short time after the deportation started, hundreds of Jews died due to the brutal behavior of the SS guards and the Hungarian gendarmes. Adolf Eichmann wanted able-bodied Jews to be marched to Austria, but his SS gang chased the Jews at random out of their living quarters. They did not care if somebody was sick or too old to march. They just went by the numbers and how many they rounded up. The temperature at the beginning of November was down to 22 Fahrenheit. Winter weather already, and it was dropping lower day by day. When the SS soldiers were chasing the Jews out of their houses, they did not care if they have any proper clothing or not. They beat them out of the houses, sometimes without overcoats. They had the winter uniform on. They didn't feel the chilly weather, but they did not look at the Jews like human beings, but numbers only. Hundreds of them died in a few days after the march started, and many more each day as long as the march was ordered. The threat from Western powers to bomb the country of Hungary did not bother the, Jew the Nazis because they were going to leave Hungary anyway. The loss of lives or property damage was now the Hungarians' problem, not the Nazis. A large number of marchers died because of the icy November weather conditions, the lack of proper food, 
and because the weak and sick were not treated at all. Sometimes they just fell before they reached 30 kilometers, a daily goal. All those people were shot to death by SS guards on the same spot they fell on on the frozen snowy ground. Talking to some of the eyewitness survivors, they talked about the SS guards' inhumane brutality when they forced the wives to dig graves for their dead husbands, and in the end, they murdered the women too. 25,000 Jews were driven from the capital toward the Australian front Austrian frontier. Many were approved by Zelazy's Nazi government, but the real number was more than 35,000. To give the hungry and fatigued marchers a little hope, the SS guards told them that after they arrive, they will have a decent place to live and a proper food ration. Their job will be to build a wall for the defense of Vienna. That lie was so obvious, none of the marchers believed it. The next subsection is titled Death Marches. Nobody knows the exact number how many Jews died during the marches. By the best estimation of the Hungarian government and the Jewish community Budapest, over 8,500 Jews lost their lives from November 6th when the marches started till the day that it was stopped. Thousands of Jews died from exhaustion, hunger, and sickness. Some of them were frozen to death or were murdered by the guards while marching. Raul Wallenberg established his own listening network, or sometimes used ours to find out where the impending deportation would take place. Then he usually managed to arrive at the railroad station showing his official Swedish papers and walked away with hundreds of Jews. Several times the German SS guards were threatening to shoot him, but he always find a way in the, to handle the gravest situation. Sometimes he raced alongside the deportation train and caught up with them at the next stop. Counting on the stupidity of the German guards, he walked away with many Jews who had any kind of signed official paper. On November 7th, some of the Palestinian parachuters who were promised to be freed by the von Horthy government were shot to death by the Hungarian Nazis. The night before, a few hundred Jews were taken to the Aircross Party headquarters on Stefani Street, where their clothes were taken away with all the protective documents they had. They were beaten for no reason, and after that, their underwear was given back to them, and they were taken to the side of the capital to, the, to a brick factory. They were left there for several days without any food or heat on the chilly November nights. After the Aerocross came back, the Jews were taken back to party headquarters on Stefani Street again. David Cohn, K-O-H-N, who survived the ordeal, told us about the terror they went through. He said that after they were back at the Nazi headquarters, they threw them into the cold basement. The Aerocross gang of young men brutally beat us again and threatened to kill all of us. The situation was so grave that about two dozen older people went out of their minds and killed themselves by smashing their heads against the brick wall. Although all of them had protective documents, only half of them were released. The rest were taken to the synagogue on Tabor Street, where the Aerocross gangs killed the weak and the sick. In November 1944, the killing of Jews in the streets of Budapest was an everyday event. The representatives of the neutral countries, like Raul Wellenberg, issued thousands of protective documents and concentrated many thousands of Jews into protected houses. These people were saved from the mass deportations, and Wellenberg provided meals for them on a daily basis. Medical care, doctors, and hospitals were available for them too. But those individuals who lived in the ghetto did not have the assurance of these benefits at all. Even those Jews in the ghetto who were saved from the latest foot deportation to Germany 
had their lives at risk 24 hours a day, every day, because of the brutality of the Gestapo or the Aerocross Nazi gangs. Neither Wallenberg nor Charles Lutz had time to take care of the individual cases. Ever since Wallenberg arrived in Budapest and we started working together, he always turned to us as if it was a matter of one or two persons or one family's safety. We always found a way to help them out. The Communist Red Army was advancing rapidly on Hungarian territory and was getting closer to the Hungarian capital every day. The safety and life of the Jewish population in Budapest were more and more jeopardized. The young Aerocrass gangs were roaming the streets of Budapest like wild dogs. Those Jews who left the ghetto to buy food or clothing during the allowed time never knew what might happen to them if they run into an Aerocross gang. Usually they were beaten savagely. Everything was taken away from them, including their protective papers, and then they were chased back to the ghetto with sticks and whips. Almost every day, some of the houses that sheltered Jews were raided by Aerocross gangs. They usually robbed the Jews, beat them senselessly, and at many times brutally killed some of them. This brings to an end Episode 9 of the audio podcast, The Holocaust in Hungary, subtitled, It Can Happen Here. At this point, I'll reiterate one of George's major points, that with 10 years of propaganda, ordinary children, who became teenagers after 10 years, were able to commit these heinous atrocities as a result of propaganda. My name is Dale.